about, I don't know, 10 or 12 verses of Scripture initially to open this passage. And we've got an additional moment of worship um, at the end of the, uh, the message. Shane and the worship team is going to come back. And we came in worshiping. We'll go out worshiping today. We're going to read from the Psalms for a moment here. And uh, certainly we're going to conclude with one psalm here in just a little while. But two of the three psalms that we'll read from were written from the psalmist David, or written by the psalmist David. Now remember, the psalmist David is only um, the author of approximately 75 of the 150 psalms. So you, many times we think that each one of these are David's pen. They are not. Most of them that he has penned, it simply says before a psalm of David. Psalm 26, we're going to read just one verse of Scripture out of it. And it's in verse number 8, and we're going to turn to Psalm 27. But let's read verse number 8, and let's pay attention. There's a little bit of a pattern that we're following here, and we're going to try to weave these together, where it says here, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house. I want you to let these words sing in. He said, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Isn't that exciting, David? David saw that somehow or another a a building of some type could be transformed, not necessarily by the decor, but by the presence of God. So then he says in Psalm 27, though I almost could have read the entirety because of the psalm, but it's 14 verses, but to expedite our reading, we'll just read verses 1 through 6. So the Lord, David said, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. So David said, when I'm facing a conflict. Things are going on around me. And even within me, he said, there's something that I'm going to put my confidence in. What is it? One thing above all else have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after. Read it with me. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. That's why we call this a sanctuary. It means a safe place. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me, and he shall set me upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Everybody said amen. Now, I could stop right there and just say, man, we could preach from that. But we're going to continue on. We're going to turn to Psalm 84. We'll read four verses, and then we'll read one verse from Psalm 122, and that will conclude the reading of Scripture. Today, Psalm 84. I don't know if you noticed this, but this is how we began our worship service today. For here it says, how amiable are thy tabernacles, or how beautiful are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. 
Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will, still, they will be still praising thee, Selah. Blessed are those who dwell in the house of God. Amen? Now, one last verse of Scripture, though we're going to read the entirety of this psalm in a little while. It's Psalm 122. But to set the context in which I want to talk to you about today, in the midst of this psalm of David, here's the fourth verse. One more time, it's a psalm of David. Psalm 84 was not a psalm of David. The previous 26 and 27 was, and we're concluding with Psalm 122, strategically located between 121 and 123. We'll read verse number 4. My humor is so much farther than y'all are capable of grasping. Here it says in the fourth verse, listen. Whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, and to the testimony of, of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. So I want to talk to you today about when the tribes go up. So I want you to let that get down in your spirit, in your heart, in your mind today, when the tribes go up. When the tribes go up. Let's pray. Father, I love you. And I thank you for every person, God, as I've prayed privately, now I'll pray it openly for every person, many of which I did not know who would be here today, but I'm so grateful that you have prompted them by your spirit to bring them into this house. Visitors, those that are uh, very familiar with our fellowship, or those that have come a couple of times, God, and they're still searching for the potential of a church home, God, for whatever reason you have brought this mixed congregation to this house today to give me a sacred responsibility and yet opportunity to speak the word of God to them. Now, Father, what I prayed privately, I want to pray it audibly that the people might hear today. Father, all this will be of no avail if the heart of the people is not prepared to receive the word of God. Father, I can stand and I can kneel and I can pray and I can twirl and dance and I can ask you to prepare my heart and prepare, me, Father God, me to share this message. But if the people are distracted, and if their minds are running to and fro, and the heart is not prepared, Father, then it will have been no avail. But my heart's prayer today has been that you would prepare the hearts of the people to receive the engrafted word of God, which the prophet James and apostle James said is able to save their souls. So today, God, let us learn and glean that when the tribes go up, Something powerful can happen in our lives. And we are so thankful for that in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen and amen. And you can be seated. I'm excited about sharing with you a thought that's been racing through my mind for some time now. And in doing so, I may wreck a little bit of your theology. And I don't mean to do so. I don't necessarily wreck it, but it might, um, it might demand that you study out some things a little bit along the way. Now, certainly my life and who I am as a pastor is tied exclusively to what we call the church, the local body of Christ. I don't have as much interaction out in the field as I do in the sheepfold. And I can honestly say with David, I love the house of God. I know that many times in my life, that if I've had a very difficult week and challenges, now you have to understand us pastors arrive at church with a different perspective many times. The story was told by T.D. Jakes as he shared the contrast between the parishioner and the preacher. He said these words. He said, all the church comes to church empty, but goes away full. The preacher comes full, and he goes away empty. And so, but at the same time, as much as I am privileged to be able to hear the Word of God, I can honestly say to you I have an excitement inside me when I have an opportunity to be able to share the Word of God, to be able to preach and minister the truths to God, of God to the people. 
to be able to share in song and worship, prayer, fellowship, communion, to be able to just look somebody in the eye and to be able to say, man, I love you and I'm grateful that you're here in this house. The whole gamut. Thank God for the house of God today. I'm grateful for it. And so in my contemplations and study, I want to talk to you just a little bit, and I'm going to allude to a few passages, or one passage in the book of Revelation for just a moment, because I want to talk about something for a, for a brief moment, and it's, it's about what we call the house of God, the church. The, the, we even take the church. The word church, actually, in the original language is ecclesia, and it means the called out ones. But we're familiar with the house of God. We've drawn that from the references in the Old Covenant of the house of the Lord. Even the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, as he gave instruction towards both, be, both bishops and deacons, he said these words in 1 Timothy 3 and 16, that thou mayest know how to behave thyself in the house of God. Even in a day when they didn't have a facility or building designated as the house of God, the ecclesia where the ecclesia met, Paul was still giving certain ramifications. He's reaching back into the history of ancient Israel. Also, he's acutely aware of the Jewish presence in the temple that was still abiding on uh, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in those days. And I, I do a lot of personal study along that line and just kind of the history of the temple and, and uh, then the activity. You know, because I understand this today, church family. I understand this, that you and I are now the temple of the Most High God. We understand that with clarity. We know that the Spirit of God abides inside of us. Right? Inside of us. But at the same time, we still don't devalue. Rather, we heighten our value of corporate worship. The very fact that the Spirit of God is now dwelling on the inside of me does not take away from the compulsion that I have inside me to gather for corporate worship and to be able to call these gatherings the house of God. Actually, I have a heightened sense of coming together with the people of God because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Because there's something inside of me that I don't want it to lie dormant. There's a gift and a calling inside of me that I don't want it to become rusty and to uh, not have a purpose. I want it to be stirred and agitated. And you know when it's agitated? When, it's a, when I'm around people that are in need of the gift that's inside me. That's when I'm awakened and my call. You know what will awaken the preacher's gifting and draw the preacher right out of it? And that's a hungry congregation. That's what will awaken a preacher's gifting and callings and anointings. And, and that's the value when we come together. I want to talk to you just real quickly. When you think about the book of Revelation, the last of the books that we see in the Scriptures, oftentimes the mindset of so many of us is the anticipation. And we've taught this, and the church has taught it this way for many, many, many years, of the anticipation of the consummation of the times. And the consummation, it's often given the context of, here's a big theological word, eschatology, which simply means end times, or the study of end times. And we often think about revelation and, 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 the, and the consummation at, at the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and, and, uh, and all of those things. And that's powerful, and perhaps it is saying and foreshadowing things that are yet to come. But you, there are those that have studied that particular book that believe that much of the imagery that was written there was not necessarily literal, but that it was prophetic. 
and that it actually carried symbolism. Now, you can't get away from the symbolism in Revelation. I don't care whether or not you are a literalist or you are somebody that believes in symbolism. There is too much imagery and symbolism. Jesus himself called it the mystery. And he gave the anointing and gave clarity to John and the angel of the Lord that spoke to John to bring clarity. But there's a passage in Revelation chapter 21 that I'm going to allude to here in just a moment. There are those that, again, think about the book of Revelation only as futuristic. And we always keep bumping it down the road. There are those, though, there are some others that believe that it was futuristic at the time that it was given, but that it was written to encourage the first century church that was suffering under the persecution of both Judaism and Rome. And most of the time, it was collective. The Roman persecution was aided with the Judaizers, and they persecuted the church. And there are those that believe it was an encouragement to the church. Hold on. Hold on. You're going to make it. We're going to win. There's going to be a great victory in Christ, and there's a promise. And so if you read this, and we, we, we see familiar phrases like a new heaven and a new earth, there are those that have saw this passage of Scripture and say that while that may still yet be referencing the consummation of the times, but that it is possibly speaking prophetically of a day when God's presence no longer dwelt in the temple on the temple mound. Because that would be destroyed in 70 A.D. And it's gone. And they still contend for the right to worship on that mound. You can, matter of fact, it was in the news just two, this, in the last two weeks of ongoing conflict between the Muslims, who consider that the third holiest side in all of Islam, and the Orthodox Jew, who considers it the most holy site within Judaism, and even the Orthodox Christians who have a presence on the Temple Mount or near the Temple Mount. And there's been a place and a fighting uh, for that mount as if the presence of God abode singularly there on that mount. And I had the privilege, along with Dr. Brassfield and others, Jojo and Shane and a group of others, to, uh, to journey there. Certainly we were not given access to the top of the mount, but we journeyed there on our tour of Israel many years ago. And I can remember one singular incident that kind of stirred my heart. Not, it was not at the Wailing Wall. Many of you have the images of the Wailing Wall, the last of the, of, the, of the walls of the old city of Jerusalem that's still in place that goes all the way back to the first century. But what you may not know is that there are a lot of tunnels underneath the Temple Mound, and you can still access to what is believed to be almost the identical resting place. The, you can't be up there above it, but you can go below it. And I can remember when we were going through these tunnels, there was a particular place where women were not allowed to go any farther. There was a line that was drawn. And so they could go here and only far, uh, no farther because they were trying to be consistent with the Old Testament practice of the court of the women. The men could go about 100 yards further. And what the objective of the Orthodox Jew was is they believed that they were coming as close to right beneath where the Ark of the Covenant used to abide. And they wanted to get as close as they could to it. Because they believed that the closer they got to that location, they would be closer to the presence of God. And I can remember when we were going through this one narrow passageway, and it was in the very last place where the women could go. And there was a young girl, probably 13 or 14 years old, and she was being raised to be an Orthodox Jew. 
and she had, uh, she had her hair and, and, and all of that and, and her dress, and she had her little prayer book, and she was kind of already adapting and adopting the rocking that many of the Jews do when they pray, rocking back and forth, and she was reading. And, and in my heart of hearts, as I walked past her, I thought to, I was grieved within myself because I thought to myself that the presence of God is not necessarily bound to that rock that's 200 yards away from you. But if you only knew the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the life of God that we have in Christ Jesus. And so for just a moment here in the book of Revelation then, the context, the way that some interpret this is that some believe that, that, that the writer John through the angelic visit of the angel is telling the people that the presence of God doesn't abide in that tabernacle or temple any longer, but that the church... The church, which means the ecclesia or the called out ones made up of both Jews and Gentiles without a middle wall of partition dividing us, without a court of the women, without the court of the Gentile, but that we are knit together in love as the people of God and we're being built up a spiritual house. I didn't know y'all were going to go into all of that today, but that just kind of confirms that I'm in the right vein here today, that we're being built up collectively as the house of God. For the abiding presence of the living God. And so in Revelation 21, look at this for just a moment. We're going to just, I want to journey real quickly. And then I'm going to kind of just uh, bring this into making it as personal as I can. But just see this with me. Now, some of you are like, Pastor Brown, you're, these are not like the books that I read. Well, I can't help it. I can only share with you what's in my heart. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. But John said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, listen to these words. Now, many times we always want to project this to the future. But look at this. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Now, what if that was actually being prophetic for now. It was prophetic then, and it's the present now. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he dwells with us. Isn't that why they called him Emmanuel? Come on, I don't know, but and he said that he would dwell among us, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and he be their God. And God will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former. Notice this. Now, oftentimes we think about the death and the sorrow, and we're anticipating the resurrection. And I believe firmly and fully and completely in a resurrection. I believe in, in, in God's and in Christ returning to the earth. Don't think I'm taken away from any of that. But is it possible when he read, wrote this, he said, for the former things. Is he talking about Judaism? And it's a limited accessibility to God that is being passed away. And he said, but he that sat upon the throne said, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, right, for these words are true and faithful. So it's maybe just a little different way of looking at it, but it's possible. I'm going to say it's possible. So then let's jump down to the 22nd verse in the same context. For here John references something that he was looking for. He was looking for it because... The entirety of the worship that he had been taught since he was a young boy being raised in the heart of Judaism that was all worship centered around the temple. All, and, and thus Jerusalem had gained its identity from the temple. 
We're going to talk about it in just a moment. And so now John gives this, sees this great vision. And John said, I was looking around for this rock-hewn temple, and I didn't find it. He said, I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And if this application is true in Scripture, the reference is, is that the gates of Jerusalem would be shut at night, every night, to protect the city. But here John said, I saw a collective people, place, whatever you want to say. I saw an opportunity to worship where he said, the gate will not be shut. There will never be a moment when I don't have accessibility to the presence of God. Right? That I can go boldly into his presence. Because I come in by virtue of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I have accessibility to the sovereign presence of Almighty God. Hallelujah. And the gates of it will not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither that worketh abomination or maketh a lie. You say, Pastor, how can I be a part of such a powerful worship service and be a part of a collective group of people that are worshiping God? It's not just show up. you got to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your name's got to be written in the Lamb's book of life. He is the doorway. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. You can go up the cobblestone steps that led to the temple in Jerusalem only to arrive at a place of cold, disheartened worship. But if you'll come in through the virtue of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you'll experience the presence of a living God in your heart and in your life every day. Every day. So when you think about this, and I'm not going to try to mess your theology up too much. Too much. But in Hebrews chapter number 12, we see a little bit uh, similar, and I'm not going to go there, but the apostle there who's writing said, we have not come to Mount Zion. He said, we've not come to the temple. Then he said, first he said Zion, then he alluded to Sinai, or Sinai. He said, where the, where the mountain shook and anybody that touched it would be killed. He said, but we've come to a heavenly Mount Zion. We've not come to an earthly Jerusalem, but we've come to a heavenly Jerusalem. He spoke of it, and you can kind of see a correlation. And I can remember the very first martyr of the church. And one of the things that caused the Sanhedrin to stone Stephen on that fateful day in Acts chapter number 7, when they laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul, was as he preached... He preached the journey of the history of Israel all the way from Abraham all the way to their present situation, including the erection of first the tabernacle. He called it the church in the wilderness. And then the temple, to which I'm going to allude in just a moment. But then they were with him on that, and they were celebrating because that was the history of the people of Israel. They were identifying. But when Stephen got to this part, 
in his message. That's when they stopped up their ears, rent their clothes, and began to dig into the dirt till they got stones in their hand because they were so full of anger because his theology was so different than anything they had ever embraced in their life because Stephen said that our God does not dwell in buildings made with hands. And when he said that, they were so filled with anger and violence that they dug into the dirt and they cast stones and they killed him as they laid their feet, or excuse me, their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so I want to say that again to you today. Yes, you can buy a ticket. And yes, you can fly out of New York or perhaps even out of Atlanta and you can cross the Atlantic Ocean and you can land in Jerusalem and you can pay for the bus or the taxi driver and they will take you up and you can make that journey up to a familiar place that you're calling the temple or the house of God. But I want you to know that when I got in my vehicle, a 2006 Ford F-150, that's long as a, uh, uh, what is it that they take people to the funeral with? A, that's what I look like coming down the mountain. But you know what? Inside of my heart was a song. Inside of my heart was an anticipation because I was coming to the house of God. I was coming with joy. I was coming with hope. I had something in my heart to give. I had something to get and receive. There was an excitement. I was not going to offer the blood of a bullock or a goat, but I was going to offer the sacrifice of praise to my God and worship Him in spirit and in truth today. Thank God thy servant loves the house of God. And I was thinking about David for just a moment because David seems to, David seems to be somebody, he loved the house of God, didn't he? David's the one that wrote, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart, right? I will enter his courts with praise, correct? David's the one that gave us that famous psalm. And I was noting this with Shane just a little bit earlier in the week when I told him what I had in my heart David referenced multiple times the house of God, did he not? This was just a, one of the many times that he referenced it, both in his Psalms. What we read in Psalm 26 about the presence of God, the glory of God. He said that for those that love the habitation of the house of God. And then he said, I long, I long to dwell. Even the famous Psalm, Psalm 23 I will dwell in the house of the Lord for forever, correct? But can I just share with you real quickly? As you read that, you have a picture image of the house of God that was not erected during the days of David's pilgrimage. You remember it was in David's heart to build a temple. Matter of fact, he sat down and he mused about it. And he said, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent made of curtains. And he said amongst himself, and he thought, my gosh. So he called for the prophet Nathan. There was something in his heart. He thought, I'm going to build a house. I'm going to build a house that is going to be magnificent for the glory of God to abide. And the prophet Nathan came to him and said, David, you do exactly as you have thought this is of God. But then the, how many know sometimes those preachers can get a little bit too hasty and not hear from God? So Nathan goes home and God visits Nathan in the night and says, Nathan, you need to go and tell David he's not going to build me a house. 
I'm going to build him a house. Because he said there's going to come one out of your loins. He's going to come out of your loins. And he said of his kingdom, it'll never end. Isn't that powerful today? And then so we can read the narrative further. So what David did have was, he did have at first the tabernacle. Everybody remembers the tabernacle that Moses was giving instruction on in the Exodus. And it was mobile. And it was made of skins. And there was a separation. And you could go into the, uh, into the courtyard. And there you could find the brazen uh, laver. Uh, you know, first, excuse me, the brazen altar. Then the brazen laver. And then you'd go into the, to the actual tabernacle itself. And there was the holy place. And there's the table of the shoe bread. And there was the, 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 the golden lampstand. And then the golden candlestick. And... And then on the other side of the curtain, you know the story, many of you do, was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant there is where God had told Moses, he said, there uh, between the cherubims, he said, there's where I'm going to buy the presence of God. You remember in the days of David, he didn't uh, pitch the tent of the tabernacle, but he was in Jerusalem and he said, the one thing I do want is the Ark. And they obtained the Ark of God and they brought it to Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, or what would be later, or named city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, David's city, kind of combined there for a little while. And he erected or he pitched a tent for it and he set the Ark of God. So maybe that's what he's alluding to. I don't know. All I know is, is that when David's talking about the house of God, there was no house of God. So what I want to suggest to you today is maybe David, who was the sweet psalmist of Israel, and he was anointed as the king of Israel, but he was also a prophet. And maybe he was prophetically declaring unto us a day and an hour when accessibility to God's presence would not be bound to a certain uh, geographical location. But wherever God's people come together, Jesus said, if two or three of you will come together in my name. God said, there I'll be right in your very midst. And so I thank God for the supernatural presence of an almighty God that I'm not trying to say cannot manifest himself on that temple. He can, and he will, and I believe all that. But I want you to know that every day that I come down that mountain and I make my journey into this valley called Heber Springs, I don't do so in top of remorse that I'm not in Jerusalem worshiping, I do so with great expectation because I have an opportunity to worship a living God. And I'll be able to praise His name and I can be able to say I love the dwelling place of God. I thank God for the little bits of time that God gives us to come together and worship. I thank God for we live in a racked up world. We live where there's, there's crisis and, and, and there's shootings, unfortunately, that are happening in places that you didn't even think would be happening. And there's storms that are blew, blowing off of the coast. And there's a lot of things that can create fear. David himself said, there are enemies around me. You're fighting situations. You've got doctor's reports. You've got issues. You've got medical uh, you know, issues. You've got bills that you can't pay. All this. But God said, I'm going to give you a little solace. I'm going to give you a little sila. I'm going to give you a little moment where you're going to get out of all that rat race and you're going to come and you're going to abide in my presence and you're going to behold the glory of God. The glory of God. How beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to share with you the truth of God's love and His grace and His kindness and the wonder I don't know why church is such a struggle for some people. 
I don't know why getting people to go to church is like pulling their teeth or chaining them or leading them. I don't know why you don't run in here every day because you remember you were a sinner, you were an adulterer, you were a fornicator, a drunkard, and a drug addict. But when the blood was applied to your life, you were redeemed and made whole. My God, why don't you run in here every day saying, I can't wait. I can't wait to be in His presence. He's done too much for me. His glory abides in my life. And I'm not going to be silent about it. And the psalmist said, Psalm 122, the psalmist said, I was glad. I don't know about you, I'm glad today. I was glad when they said unto me. You know what church ought to be? It ought to be an anticipation. It ought to be a hunger in her heart and an anticipation and a thinking and pondering and where you're saying, my God, I can't wait. Today's Wednesday. They call it hump day. God, get me over. I'm not looking for Friday. Mm-mm. I know you say, well, thank God it's Friday. And you say, well, now it's fall. Now we got football on Saturdays. Yeah, that's all good, I suppose, unless you're a Razorback fan. Then it's probably not that good. But then the anticipation of our heart. Ought to be. When I say, come on, Sister Sherry, I'm waiting. Never mind, that's another sermon altogether. Sherry, we get paid to be there. Come on. And like when I had small children, come on, get in the, come on, get in the 15 passenger van, JoJo. Come on, we're going. We don't have to go, but we get to go. It's not a struggle. It's a celebration. It's joy. I'm going to smile. I'm going to laugh. I'm going to dance. I'm going to shout. I'm going to cry. You're rejoicing. I'm going to rejoice with you. You're down. I'm going to get down, but I'm not going to stay down with you. I'm going to help pick you up in the name of the Lord and say, let's get your feet on a rock. God said he'll lead you to a rock that's higher than you are. I'm going to teach you how to pray, worship, adore a living God that loved you so much that He wouldn't leave you in sin, but He would send His Son to redeem you from all iniquity. God forbid that we can't come in here, that we don't come in here with the full expression of adoration. David said, I was glad. Didn't he say that? Y'all read it with me. Let's walk this psalm down in closing today. He said, our feet are going to stand within thy gates. Let me tell you what will help you today. Quit being in and out of church. I just want to tell you, quit being in and out of church. Get inside the gate and stay there. Revelation said, outside the gate are the sorcerers and the dogs and the hormones. I don't want to be enabled with that group. I'm, not, I'm compelling them to come in by virtue of the blood. So one of the things that grieves us pastors the most, we'll see folks for a while. They'll be on fire for God. They'll be praying. They want to work and serve. And then it doesn't take long for just many, unfortunately, to drift away from the thing God's designed to give you such a spiritual renewing and charge that it prepares you for the rest of the week. My feet shall stand Within thy gates. Isn't that what it said? My feet will stand within thy gates. Look at this. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compacted together. Did you know the church gains its strength from the united fellowship of its worshipers? What do you mean by that compacted together? 
That means we'll only be as strong as we are unified. If we're divided, fragmented, pulled apart, living in our own little world, not connected to other people, then we'll be a weak, frail entity called the church. But if we're unified, arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, brother to brother, sister to sister, come on. Paul said it this way, our hearts are knit together in love. You're not going to pull us apart. Compacted together, united in a common faith. Where the tribes go up. I love that, the tribes. The tribes is referencing the 12 tribes of Israel, David is. With the 12 clans. What that means is, if you'll just be honest and look at it, there was a lot of diversity. Even though they were all one people, Israel, there was a lot of diversity. There were folks that lived in the lowland. Folks that lived by the water. Folks that were agricultural. All kinds of diversity. But the promise... The prophet said, but when the tribes come together, thank God we don't all look the, the same. We don't all talk exactly the same. Now, we're still unified, but we still represent, and I know that's an overused word in today's culture, diversity. But there is much diversity in the body of Christ. Thank God when the tribes, come on, when the tribes come together, Let's follow it. What are they coming together? Look at this. To the testimony of Israel. That, for, that generation meant the law. And so I wrote it this way. Thank God for hearing the word. Thank God for the opportunity. Thank God for these men and women that have a call on their life. And they're anointed of God. And they spend their time like this. Praying and they're crying out. And they're saying, God, I need a word for the people. The people have been out in the world all week and they have faced the onslaught of the enemy's attack. And when they come here, God forbid that I give them some carbon copied sermon that I got off of sermon.com. But God opened my mouth and filled my heart with a word of fire. Let me be like Jeremiah. I would forbear. I would cease. But I can't because his word is like fire shut up in my bones. I want you to know today, if you come to First Assembly, I can guarantee you, I can't guarantee you I'll be the most theologically accurate and I cannot guarantee you that I'll always have the right vocabulary and I've sometimes been known to make a word up on the fly and act like it's a real word in the English dictionary but the one thing I can guarantee you is that when I get in this pulpit I'm going to have a word in my spirit to, to share with you to challenge you and to charge you to be the person God's called you to be verse 5 there are set thrones of judgment of the house of David. Thank God for the altar. Thank God that I'm not going to judge you. But I'm going to create an opportunity for you to judge yourself. I knew two people would be shouting down on me on that one. And the rest would be like. Thank God for the altar. Thank God. Every day I say, Father. Someone quoted it last week. The psalmist David said, Lord, let the meditation of my heart. And the words of my lips be acceptable unto thee, O Lord, my God, and my Redeemer. God, I pray today. This is how I pray. Father, I pray every bit of sensuality, iniquity, and wickedness that might be inside me. Everything that's born of the flesh. Everything of an evil thought and imagination. God, I want to pull it down in Jesus' name. Because I want to be holy and consecrated and dedicated unto you. I want the sweet fragrance of a living Christ. I don't want people around me to feel a sense of corruption and iniquity and evil and sensuality and sin. 
but I want them to say, I smell the sweet fragrance of a resurrected Christ abiding on the inside of you, the smell of life to those who believe. For there are set thrones of judgment. Let's read it in closing. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for each other. Pray for one another. Don't just give me that old smile that you get at church and how are you doing and that's all. I don't want to hear that. Listen, I want to pray. I want to say, God, I'm holding you up in prayer. You're going through a battle. The battle may not end when you walk out of here. Doesn't mean every battle suddenly stops because you came to church. But it means you gained the strength to get back in the battle. And I want you to know I'm praying for you. Isn't that right? Number seven, peace be within thy walls. And look at this, prosperity within thy palaces. I believe there's a prospering that takes place when you unite with the church. There's a prosperity that you cannot, let, you cannot measure in gold and silver. There are some of you that come here today and God has blessed you with finances and resources and cars and houses and all that. And others come impoverished. But it doesn't mean you're not prospering. I'm telling you what, because if there's grace in your heart and love and a smile on your face and you got your children around you and you get a chance to hug on them before they grow and they're gone, I'm telling you, you can have the prosperity of God. You can. You can have the prosperity of God. Eight and nine, I'll close as the worship team begins to make their way back. Praying for peace in verse number eight. For my brethren and my companions' sake, David said. David said, for my... Brethren, in my companion's sake, I'm going to say, peace be within thee. And I noticed this. Earlier he said that may peace be around you, verse number 6, the peace of Jerusalem. But he said, but I'm also praying that there's peace within you. Isn't the peace of God such a gift? I feel like I can face any challenge that may be in front of me as long as I have the peace of God in my heart. I tell people, and I'm going to say this today, every situation in your life, and I just kind of alluded to it briefly, may not be absolved or resolved, either one, by being at church. But when God drops peace in your heart, then you'll be able to get up. Say, you know what, I can face this. Because if God be for me, who can be against me? I'm settled, I'm settled. And lastly, the ninth verse, he said, because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. So the prophet, the psalmist, the King David, in a day when there was no stone-hewn temple on the mountain behind his palace, said, I love the house of God, and I look forward to going into his presence. So church family, is it possible he was prophetically declaring what a privilege it will be for the people of God one day. That wherever we're at, we can have the presence of God among us. Does that make sense here today? We can have his presence. We can long for his presence. The psalmist said, I long for thy presence. In thy courts, I worship. When the tribes go up, we're going to sing a song as you stand up today. I want to give an invitation before we do.